This is an ABC podcast. Do you want to try? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so, yep. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I've got no idea. I, I can't believe you can do that. Not easy. Yeah, so there I am being a spectacular failure at something that you'll find out about a bit later here on Sporty. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith. Hey, you know when you're doing a bit of window shopping, it can't have escaped your notice that the mannequins that display the clothes are always a lot taller and leaner than most of us. So what happens when a sportswear brand uses a plus-size mannequin to display its plus-size activewear? You get a controversy, that's what. Claims that it's promoting obesity and that any real person of corresponding size would be unhealthy and therefore wouldn't and couldn't be active. Dr Evelyn Parr is an exercise and nutrition scientist at the Australian Catholic University. So Evelyn, with the Nike mannequin that was introduced last month into its London store, would a real person of that body shape be per se unfit? I mean, can you tell how fit and well anybody is by their appearance? No, not in the slightest. I couldn't, and I do regularly exercise test individuals. Yeah, there you're are, an expert. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there are there are many facets to whether somebody is fit. And no, body size is not a true indicator. You don't know that person. You don't know what they do on a daily basis. You don't know what they're capable of and what they're used to doing. What about all the, the medical advice and warnings that we get that being overweight increases your risk of heaps of chronic diseases, so, you know, type 2 diabetes, heart attack, stroke, that it also stresses your joints, so on and so on. That's all true and evidence-based, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not doubting that in the slightest, but that's only looking at size or or BMI, as we typically describe it. Body mass index. Body mass index, yes, Uh, and not looking in terms of what somebody's overall health is. It's more the hidden fat that is an issue than the pinchable fat, but we're all built very differently. So when somebody goes out for a run and, you know, after training for 12 weeks, they haven't lost any weight, but they can run further and faster. That's a much better indicator of someone's fitness and then someone's health, in my view, than looking at whether they changed on the scales. Well, let's talk about uh, what you mentioned, internal fat, visceral fat. So, um, you know, in a way, there's good fat and bad fat. We all need fat, right? So males need around 4% body fat, women about 13%. So it is very different between the sexes to start with. But then we do need to have body fat in order for our hormones to, to work and our body to work effectively. So when we get too small, then we have issues. But like we- most mannequins <laughs> that size. Oh, exactly. I mean, they're, they're not really human-shaped really. Um, but <laughs> well, they're not really human. <laughs> well, they're definitely not human. That is for sure, Amanda. But when we're talking about the bigger end of the scale, 
we do need body fat. We don't need as much body fat as most of us probably have. I don't need as much body fat as I have, but fat's a good insulator and it's a good storage of fuel you know, having an amount of fat and, and not demonising it, but also, as you mentioned, the type of fat. So the fat that's in around your middle, which is really hard to quantify. You this need is the visceral fat the visceral that sits fat that's around in, your organs. In and around your organs, yeah. We can have fat that we can pinch around our tummy, like I can pinch mine right now, um, and then there's fat that's sort of in there and hidden. And it's the more fat that's in there and hidden that's really close to those vital organs that secretes out these factors called adipokines that then signal in negative ways basically. That means that, you know, that that's not a good health prognosis. So, but, but really, even if you're genetically disposed to being a larger person, you can control your visceral fat with activity, exercise? Again, there are some people that are going to have more visceral fat than others. We don't know why. There'll be some gene, you know, interrelationship that hasn't uh, quite been discovered yet. But absolutely exercise and as well as nutrition, you know, it's a combination, will help reduce that visceral fat. So also as far as health is concerned, where do you put losing weight in the scheme of things then? I think mentally it's important to a lot of people as well as aesthetically. We're an aesthetic society, you know tall, lean mannequins. That's what people are looking at, models on the front of covers of magazines. But we can't really change our body shape. And it does get to the point where people have to accept that they're built in a certain way and make the most of how you are built. For me, that's uh, I can do a lot of swimming, but I can't run for whatever reason. So I just have to get over the fact I'm never going to run a marathon, but I'm quite happy to swim a 10k There's race. something for everyone. Right, exactly. And when we're boxing people in, again, to you must be this, it doesn't give people the opportunity to explore what they can do. And Dr Evelyn Parr is a research scientist at the Centre for Exercise and Nutrition at Australian Catholic University. Now, just as people in bigger bodies can be assumed to be unfit and inactive, the opposite also applies. Thin people are presumed to be fit and active, and that has its own consequences. Kate Fridkus is a New York writer. So I guess I've always been pretty thin, and even saying that sounds a little bit like bragging to my ears. But um, when I was in college, I remember getting positive attention from both men and women and dating a guy who was impressed with my physique and said, oh, you must really work out a lot because you're thin. You know, I had thin legs or whatever. You must be a runner. And I was not a runner at all, and I had never exercised in my life. But I got these compliments nonetheless. So what impact did other people's perceptions, you know, for example, that you must be really fit, have on you? Well, it made me feel really good. And I remember being a young girl and getting these compliments from older women. Um, I'm so jealous. You, you're so thin. And being a little bit confused about that at first because I hadn't learned just how important it was to be thin. But that became very clear to me very quickly, as it does to most people. And then later on, feeling relieved that I was naturally thin because I began to feel self-conscious about other aspects of my appearance. And I thought, thank God, at least I'm thin. So when did you start to think that maybe you weren't so fit and healthy as uh you appeared to be or as other people told you you were? 
I think I suspected it whenever I tried to do anything athletic. (laughs) There I'd be sort of panting on the sidelines. But these concepts of thinness and health and fitness were so conflated, so mixed up together. So what about medical advice? As I got older, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, your heart rate is, is pretty high. You should really do some type of cardio exercise. And it was easier to dismiss that advice because I had, over the years, had so many people say to me, you don't need to exercise, (laughs) as though I'd already accomplished any goal that exercise might have, as in I already looked the way that you're supposed to look after you've exercised. Um, Actually, a pretty dangerous and at the very least stupid idea. Well, I think you you did have a go at running when you were first dating your now husband. Yeah. So when we were first dating, he said, do you run? And a lot of people had said that to me before. And I said, no. And he said, well, would you like to go running with me? And I said, sure, why not? And I'd actually never really tried running, which sounds sort of embarrassing to admit. But I went. I, I, was, I started off running really fast because I didn't know what I was doing. I just took off like a rocket and left him in the dust. And he called after me, you're really fast. And he was impressed. And then a few blocks later, I was in pain and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I felt like, you know, my organs were being crushed and it was incredibly humiliating and I had to stop. And he said, oh, you really don't run. I said, no, I really don't. And it became painfully, literally painfully clear to me that I was very much out of shape and it was driven home in an embarrassing way. This is, as you're saying, that you had for so long absorbed and believed the the response that you always got from other people. At that moment, did that shift? It shifted gradually over a number of years as I began to think about and write about and ask some more questions about the way that thinness became synonymous with many other positive qualities in a person, including healthfulness. The the reverse corollary to this, of course, is that if you're not lean, you must be unhealthy and unfit. Now, your husband, in fact, belies that. He's a kind of big bloke, yeah? So, yeah, my husband is a good example. He is a big guy. And he is very physically fit, but we'll say is sort of ashamed of himself. Oh, I, you know, my BMI is too high and I'm technically obese. And I've heard many people say this. I'm technically obese. I'm sort of embarrassed, ashamed, as though they are failing. People who are, in fact, perfectly healthy Mm. and can run a lot farther than me. (laughs) So do you go running with your husband these days? (laughs) No. (laughs) Honestly, I still can't keep up with him. But I do walk a lot. That's something that I try to get out and do every day. It's so interesting, isn't it? This whole idea of the unhealthy thin. All you have to do to notice it is pick up a magazine and you see all of these articles that purport to be about fitness, but which are very transparently about weight loss. Um, It's really important to separate the concepts of thinness and fitness because when we mix them up and encourage people to get thin instead of to get healthy, people will find so many other ways to get thin that are unhealthy. Kate Friedkiss is a writer based in New York. A 
And here on Sporty, I want you to meet Sarah Harry now. Sarah is the author of a book called Fat Yoga. She's also a psychotherapist and one of the founders of Body Positive Australia. Now, with yoga, as a student and as a teacher, Sarah's experienced her fair share of the assumptions and presumptions that people can make based on body shape. I always went to the back. I took up as little space as I could. I didn't. I never saw other people in bigger bodies in yoga classes and I was always looked at all the time everyone always looked at me I remember this guy once when I checked into a class and he looked at me and he goes on Tuesday there's a beginners class oh like telling you to get to the beginners class yeah off you go go to beginners I bought my advanced ticket and I'm like I'm fine I didn't say anything but you know I have also been asked to put the towels or where the towels were you know someone mistook me for the towel girl to pick them up and go and take them away which I felt really like was like are you, are you joking? Like here I am in my lycra ready to teach a class. So, you know, it's it's always been assuming I'm not either the teacher or I can't do what that class is doing. So what's your personal reaction to a plus size mannequin sporting activewear in a shop? I guess my personal reaction is, so what? <laughs> You know, we should be at the point now in our society where we can accept lots of different sizes. Um, Because if you don't like my fat legs in my lycra, you can just look away is my opinion. I love, love a big pattern and a really bright pair of pants. There's an aspect to the criticism, I think, uh, you know, this plus size mannequin and by extension to real women who are larger bodied. And it's that while the apparent concern that's expressed is about health, that's not what it's really about. No, I think the uproar is not really about health at all. There are hundreds and hundreds of factors that go into weight, but about 70% of that is your genetics. So how are you going to control that? Well, the answer is you're really not. But it's very interesting to me that there is fury and outrage about a simple mannequin in a sports store for something that we all should be doing, exercise. Well, should is a word I don't usually use, but Why? It's got a high degree of shame. You know, it keeps those people inside and exercising becomes more difficult for people in larger bodies, which is something that I really don't want to see. Well, now, with your own background, as I understand it, for years you dieted and took pills and had weight loss surgery (laughs) and none of it worked in anything but the short term. What, What changed the way you thought about yourself your body yeah I mean really from oh gosh from from eight or something I hated my body to the extent that uh, I I did pretty much everything and I went to the extreme of weight loss surgery and that didn't work for me and that caused so many problems and so much repair surgery in fact but I think what changed for me was yoga so I was caring for a parent and I didn't have too much social support and um, there was this gym (laughs) it's funny like you know 20 years ago yoga was in gyms Um, and I went into this gym and did yoga once a week on a Saturday with a woman who gosh I wish I knew her name so I could thank her 
Um, but that was the turning point. That was the turning point. The yoga made me feel into my body, feel strong and begin to feel like, you know what, I'm going to be okay. And not only that, I can be in this body with some degree of peace. Well, now, um, I take it from the title of your book, Sarah, Fat Yoga, that you've embraced the word <laughs> fat. Actually, yes. Fat is an interesting word. It holds a lot of value and a lot of harm and hurt and shame and a lot of history and none of it positive. So feminists in the 60s reclaimed the word. From then, there's a lot of people who continue to use the word fat as a feminist statement, and I am just moving with them on that. And for some reason, it really pushes people's buttons. <laughs> they really react to it because they have a certain feeling about the word. So as far as, as, far as you're concerned, um, your kind of pathway, getting fitter, feeling better, feeling better about yourself... Would you say you're fit and healthy? Well, the interesting thing about are you fit and healthy to me in my body is that if you were to ask that question, not not to me, but to, to an activist or to, to another person in a bigger body, you know, who's aware of these issues – they may actually take offense to that. And I'm not saying to you that's an offensive question. I'm saying that it's an interesting question to stop and pause on because, you know, if you did all the tests, the blood pressure and you did all that stuff, it would all be great. But the problem is, you know, we still live in a medicalized system and a diet culture system, which will then grade me against a BMI system, which will then spit me out at the other end as unhealthy. I am very strong and I am very fit and I am healthy, but that's completely irrelevant because I want people to know that they don't have to be those things you don't owe your body to anyone you don't owe fitness to anyone you don't owe what you eat to anyone you certainly can't buy your health with a green smoothie which people think they can um but you know people have this idea which i call healthism which means you can through fitness and eating some of i don't know some kind of macro something you can buy yourself health and you absolutely can't once again we're looking at the majority of health being determined um genetically it's really a personal right as to how you spend your time, what you eat and, and, and how you move your body. Sarah Harry is the co-founder of Body Positive Australia and the author of Fat Yoga. And if you want to know what all the fuss has been about with the plus-size mannequin in Nike's London store, well, they're coming into Australian stores later this year, so you can have a look for yourself. I'm Amanda Smith from RN and this is Sporty. There was an international sports tournament held in Spain last month that you might not have heard about, but we're going to join two of the people on the Australian team who competed there, who are home now and back at training. Okay, Gina Marie and Chris. Yep. Let's go, let's start. We're going to warm up forehands and backhands, so I'll get one person on the forehand side. So Gina Marie, take two steps to your right. Yep, Chris, you follow me. Oh, well, follow my oh, voice over okay. here. Yep. That's it, that's it. Okay. So, cool. what we're going to do warm up our forehands and backhands. You're going to get two shots each. Yep. So it's obviously Marie, tennis, but this is blind tennis. Side. Ready, Gina Marie? Yes. Play. Great shot. 
Yep. Are you ready, Chris? Yep. Play. Well done. That was in the tram lines, doubles lines, but it was a good shot. Okay, Chris, ready? Yep. The ball here is a little bit bigger than a standard tennis ball. It's made out of foam, and as you can hear, it's got bells in it. My name is Chris Cipriou. I got into blind tennis through my ability trainer back in 2010. Yeah, she told me why don't you give blind tennis a go, and um, you know, I've loved it ever since. Hi, my name is Gina Marie Richards and I had become vision impaired and I said to myself, I want to keep active, what do I do? But I was very resistant of tennis because I'd never played sport. Wow, so that, that's quite a big deal. Yes, it was hilarious in the beginning. I always say it was like swatting, trying to swat a fly, you know, would miss a lot. And now... It's a joy. It's a joy to have some skills and just to be allowed to hold a tennis racket. What about for you, Chris? Could, did you ever ma imagine yourself playing tennis? Not at all. Tell you the truth, yeah, I wasn't sure if I could play blind tennis, but yeah, now we've competed in three international blind tennis tournaments. And Gina Marie, on the tennis court, do you feel able to move around with ease and freedom in this version of the sport? Well, that's the joy in it for me, is that it was a space where we had no mobility aid and we could just be learning to feel free, not having to use a cane. And I wouldn't say I'm entirely free to run, but it's developing. As you develop your confidence and feel you know the space. Chris actually moves very well. Like with Paralympic sports, there are classifications for competitors in blind tennis. B1 players have no vision at all, and then it moves through degrees of vision to B4. For B1, 2 and 3 players, they're allowed more than one bounce of the ball before they have to hit it. What classification do you play in, Chris? I'm a B2, so that's uh, about 20% vision. Gina Marie? I'm a B2 as well. So we have three bounces before we return the ball. And so we locate by sound. Yes, tell me about that, about <laughs> the listening for the ball. And when you've got other games all around you with the same ball bouncing, it's sometimes a bit tricky to realise which one's bouncing. But you. Yes, exactly. But our, our ears are pretty sharp now, aren't they, Chris? Yeah. You have to like really, it's a concentrating thing for me. Mm. I try to listen, you have to really concentrate for the, for the bell. So we have a way of communicating with one another. So when I'm serving to my partner, if we're playing singles, I say ready, <clears throat> they say yes, and then we say play and we've got three seconds to serve. That way we're sort of understanding one another. So there's a lot more talking in this game. Yes, but that's it. Then you've got to listen for the ball. So I'm waiting for that first bounce. What difference, Chris, has playing tennis made to your life, do you reckon? Oh, it's been phenomenal for me, like, because, you know, I get to play a sport that I never thought I could play. And also I've met the most amazing people that, that I could meet. 
And, you know, because of blind sports, I've got to go overseas also. That's another great thing. And I've also got to compete in tournaments as well, which which is uh, something that I thought I would never be able to do. All right. Chris, you ready? Yep. Four hands now. Play. Beautiful. Woo! Could you hear how well you hit that ball? Yeah. That was like right, landed right before the baseline. All right, Gina Marie, we're going to go backhand now. So, yeah. do you want to take two steps to your right? Perfect. Okay, ready? Yes. Play. That's it. Just take your racket. Remember, we talked about as soon as you hear that first bounce, taking that racket all the way back to the back fence. So, you're ready as you're moving. Okay? My name's Emma Tudnam, and I am coaching a squad for blind tennis. So what are the particulars of coaching players in this version of the sport, Emma? Well, you really need to be really verbal. You know, in, a, in coaching in general, a lot is done through sight and demonstrations and mimicking, whereas in this way, you, you have to say everything verbally. So you feel like you're constantly talking. And, and is that hard to, to adapt to as a coach? It is, yeah. It, I have to say it sort of took me a few weeks to sort of yeah get my get my head around it and make sure that I, I spoke a lot more and didn't think oh I couldn't do a demonstration and then go oh hang on no I can't you know you've just got to do everything verbally do you want to try um <laughs> yes all right yeah, try it side can you play first. tennis a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah all right. Um, you want to hit one of the balls? Yes, I'd try, like to. try sided first. Okay. Yeah. And then you can try closing. All right. Your... Yeah. I'll give it a go. <laughs> you all need right. to get your bearings. Yep. Here we go. Ready? Not bad, but I had my eyes open. Now I've got to do it with my eyes closed. Ready? I think so. Mm. Oh, completely missed it. <laughs> It's so hard. All right. Okay, ready? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I've got no idea. I, I can't believe you can do that. It's not easy. It's hard. It's disembodying. I just have an even greater uh, newfound admiration for you two because uh, that was really hard. And you know, it's the only way to know as a sighted yeah. person. You've just got to throw yourself in. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, Gina Marie, there's your racket back. Thank you Thank very you. much. Beautiful but racket. For me, it took years to um, develop it. When I first started, I could not hit the ball at all. Well, I'm not surprised. It's it difficult. Too, too hard, yeah. Beautiful. I don't know if they're going in or out. <laughs> that one was. Oh, good. Ready? Awesome. Yay. Gina Marie, can I just ask you, which is more challenging, serving or returning? I always find serving easier, but I'm not always able to get directly cross-court. And it'll usually be how I'm turning my body. Returning for me is that bounce of the ball that can change on the second bounce. But overall, I think it's both. <laughs> They're both extremely challenging, as you found when you tried it. But it's the fun of trying that I love. It's not easy. <laughs> well, that's what I know now. Thank you both very much. Hey, thanks <laughs> thank you for so trying. Much. Yeah, thank you for trying. <laughs> and Chris Cipriou and Gina Marie Richards competed for Australia at the third international blind tennis tournament that was held in Spain in June. And they were with their coach, Emma Tudnam, at the National Tennis Centre.
Now, at the moment, blind tennis is not so well known and doesn't have the same sort of participation numbers as wheelchair tennis does. You know, with players like Dylan Alcott being so successful and such an amazing advocate. But Tennis Australia is now on board with blind tennis and it's starting to grow, especially at the moment in South Australia and in Victoria. The State Tennis Associations and Blind Sport and Recreation Victoria and its president, Morris Gleeson, have been big drivers behind it. Sporty is broadcast on RN and Grandstand Digital and podcast via whatever podcast service you like to use, as well as the ABC Listen app. Subscribe if you haven't already. I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.